Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Our gospel passage this morning is a famous account of Jesus walking on water. Um, this passage, or this, this episode, if you will, appears in three different gospels. It appears in Matthew, the one we just read, that Jim just read to us. It appears in John, and it appears in Mark. Interestingly enough, though, this is the only account where Peter sort of becomes a little bit of the focus, but I want to argue that he's not the focus. Jesus is still the focus. But since he's the only, this reading is the only time that he appears, uh, we tend to want to zoom in on it and make uh, a big moral lesson out of how we should be like Peter or how we shouldn't be like Peter. I want to dissuade you of that this morning. But it's an interesting account. I mean, just, just alone that Jesus has walked on water. We don't tend to think of Jesus' miracles and think of this one first, or at least I don't. I can't speak for you. Because it's not really doing anything for anybody. It's not like feeding the 5,000, which he just did the previous chapter. Um, he's not turning water into wine. Uh, he's not healing a paralytic. He's walking on water. It seems kind of silly in some ways. Um, in fact, I was talking to my brother this week who visited Paige and I this week, and uh, Paige and me. And uh, we were talking about this passage. He says, you know, when I was in college... Um, I, I came across a minister who said that he's, he tried for three hours to walk on water. He just prayed so hard that he could walk on water. And I was like, good grief, I would have given up after ten minutes, uh, three hours. But see how this passage, and passages like it can kind of lead toward the, sort of the silly in some ways. I mean, what would have he accomplished if he walked on water? But it, it does raise a question, and you know, we see someone walking on water. Who is this person? And that's the proper uh, question, not how, what can I do to get there, but who is this, and why is it that he does this? So I want to talk about Jesus this morning. Lo and behold, we're in church. We're going to talk about Jesus. That is our focus. Remember, Peter is not the focus. But there's kind of three things that come out of this text that I want to draw your attention to. One is that Jesus is the one who prays. Um, Secondly, Jesus is the one who comforts and who saves. And third, Jesus is the one who's to be believed and worshipped. So we'll go through each of those. The first one, Jesus is the one who prays. So the very beginning of our passage, we see that Jesus wants to get away and be alone so that he can pray. He's been trying to do this now for a chapter, uh, a whole day. But of course, like I just said, the people came upon him and wanted to be fed. So the 5,000 men and the women and children wanted to be fed. So he put aside his, his moment of prayer to address their needs. John the Baptist had just died. And for whatever reason, Jesus wanted to retreat in prayer. And I want to stop there for just a second and think about that. What does it mean that Jesus prays? That's an interesting thought. Why would the Son of God need to pray? We tend to think of Jesus as this great divine being, which is all true, but we forget that he's, he's fully human too. He takes on our frailty, our weakness, our neediness uh, in some ways, and he has to pray and be alone as well. That's powerful if you think about it for just a moment. We tend to divinize him so much and put distance away. He's not the close, near, comforting Jesus that we know. He's that far-off, scary Jesus. But I want to remind you, he's the one that prays here. That's powerful. I, was, I had the chance this summer on, on a road trip down to Alabama. I got to play a lot of golf. I'm not very good at it, but I got to play a good bit. And I was talking to a buddy of mine who's also a pastor, and we were kind of joking, uh, you know, what in theory is the lowest score you can score in golf? In theory, this never happens, but in theory, 18, right? You could hit a hole in one each shot. I don't know who's done this, but we were kind of reflecting. It was like, well, maybe Jesus could do that. People think that way, you know, like, oh, if whatever it is, Jesus can do it to the best that it could be. And I think, well, maybe that's true. Maybe he could do it just the way he could walk on water. But why would he? And what's so bad with scoring a 98 like I often do anyways? Maybe Jesus shot a 98. Who knows? 
it's not a sin to shoot a 98 or 115 or whatever your golf score is or isn't. Um, but the point is, just because he's divine doesn't mean he maxes it out all the time. He takes on our weakness and our frailty, so much so that he needs to pray. And maybe he needs to pray his bad golf game too, I don't know. You get what I'm saying there? He is fully like us in that way. He's fully like us. And so we can, we can take heart in that. We'll see later on, he says, take heart. We can take heart that we need prayer too. We need to be alone with God too. I'm not putting a law or a burden on you, but it's good for you. My generation likes to talk a lot about self-care and this whole mindfulness movement, which I think is all very helpful. But beyond all the, like, the, the benefits psychologically of, of being alone with God, it is our very life source. So not to put a law on you, but that is your life source, to be with God. So Jesus prays, and more importantly that he just prays, he prays for us. And that, friends, we could end here. That, that right there is the gospel. He prays for us. He remembers you before God. He remembers you before the Father. That is gospel alone. But moving on, Jesus not only is the one who prays, but Jesus is the one who comforts and saves. So we have this, this passage where Jesus walks on water, and he approaches the disciples in the night, and they think he's a ghost. They're, they're terrified. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He says, take heart and do not be afraid throughout Matthew's gospel repeatedly. He tells the paralytic right before he heals him. He tells the disciples, not just this time, but the previous time when he was on the boat with them in another storm. He tells them before he goes to Gethsemane. This is a common, common thing that Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He's the one who comforts. He's the one who comforts. And so we trust in him. And he says this right before the transfiguration, he says, do not be afraid. He says this right after he's resurrected, do not be afraid. Jesus is the one who comforts. They respond, or I should say Peter responds by saying, Lord, is it really you? Is it really you? Now this is, the, to me, the hinge of Peter's mistake. That same language is, is it really you? Are you the one? Is it you? Is the same words that Satan used when he tempted Jesus in the garden, or excuse me, in the wilderness. If you really are, is it really you? Are you really the son of God? If so, tell these stones to be turned into bread. If so, have angels come down and minister to you. He's tempting Jesus. He's testing Jesus. Peter's using the same language there. Later on, the high priest says the same thing right before Jesus is to be crucified. If you really are the son of God, if it really is you, take care of yourself. And then shortly right before he is to be killed, the mockers say the same thing. Well, if he really is the son of God, he could just bring angels down to get him off the cross. So you see, Peter's not in good company here. That's the point here. Peter is testing and um, tempting Jesus in some ways. If it's really you, have me walk out on the water. I remember being a new Christian uh, when I was 14, and I had this kind of mentality. I thought, well, I'm going to lay on my back here in the grass. I'm going to reach up my hand, and God, if you're really real, I want you to grab me and pull me up. It was really silly. I did it for maybe five minutes. I gave up much, much sooner than that youth minister earlier who prayed for three hours that he would walk on water. I'm just not as strong as him. That's why my golf game's at 100. But we test God in these ways. We test him. God, if, it really, if you really are true, I pray that I get this job. God, if you really are who you say you are, I pray this relationship works out. God, if you really are who you say you are, Jesus, if you really do save and heal me of this, this malady. Whatever it is, we, we test God in these ways. In some ways, we need, we need something to put our faith into, but uh, we're not at liberty just to boss God around, to boss Jesus around. That's what, that's what Peter does. And lo and behold, Jesus sort of indulges it. He says, all right, come on, big guy, walk on the water. And we know it's not gonna end well. And this is normally where the typical sermon on this passage would go wrong, because the, the preacher would normally say, Peter was great, he had faith, he stepped out, it was a great venture, he took a great risk, 
if he had only kept his eyes on Jesus. That's normally where the moralism comes in. It says, well, Peter's great, but we can do better if we just keep our eyes on Jesus. That's not the point, folks. The point is, Jesus is the sinner. He's the one who prays. He's the one that comforts us and heals us and saves us. And thirdly, he's the one who's to be believed and worshiped. So this grand revelation that happens after <laughs> Peter's drowning and Jesus reaches down and saves him, they get back in the boat and the wind stops. The waves cease. And that's when they say, surely this is the Son of God. Now, if you remember the previous passage in Matthew 8, the last time they were dealing with a storm, they asked the same question. They said, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves would cease? That he can control them, that they obey him. But this time around, they realize he's the Son of God. So they've been asking, like, who is this guy that we've been spending all this time with? And the second time around where he saves Peter and the, the wind ceases, they realize this is the Son of God. This is what they've been waiting for all along. He calms the storm and his word is true. Do not be afraid. Fear not. I am with you. So unlike that normal sermon that you would hear, which is to try harder and to look at Jesus and don't give up, because that's that's what happens, right? Peter looks away and then he loses faith, whatever it is. No, that's not the point. Faith is not something you can muster on your own. Faith is not something you can work out on your own. The famous classical guitarist, uh, Manuel Barueco, I'm not a Spanish speaker, Barueco, he uh, oftentimes in his master classes, he'll ask a student, well, what's the problem here? Why, why, why do you not have this passage down yet? And they say, well, you know, they give all the excuses. He says, well, what are you going to do to fix it? They say, well, I'm going to concentrate. He says, concentrate on what? Like, you can't just concentrate. It's not like, all right, I'm going to concentrate now. You have to concentrate on something. Similarly, you can't just have faith. You've got to have faith in something something that's been revealed to you, something that's been given to you. So faith is not something you can muster up and make up. Concentration, you can't just abstractly do it. It's gotta be concentrating on something. He's right in that. And similarly, you've gotta have faith in something that's been given to you. So Jesus has given himself to us and we have faith in him, not because we worked it up on our own, but because it's a gift. Faith is a gift. So I can tell you all, all day long until I'm blue in the face, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep faith, but it's not gonna work. The point is he shows himself to you in his word, by his spirit, in the sacraments, through his love. And that, my friends, is enough. Jake has been talking a lot, Jim and Ben and all of us this summer about how it's, it's just enough to hear God's word. It's just enough to receive that sip of wine, that little wafer. It's just enough to have a little bit of water on your head. It doesn't seem like it in the midst and turmoils and the storms of our lives, but it is just enough. It's God's word and it is true. And what is that word to us? That word is you are loved, you are forgiven, you're made whole by his wounds, His resurrection is your resurrection. That's his word to you, and it's true. So unlike Peter and unlike the other disciples, we don't have to fake it and act like we have it all figured out. We can just say exactly what Peter says at the end. He becomes the true disciple when he says, Lord, save me. That's the true prayer of a disciple. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. I think of Piglet in that scene in Winnie the Pooh. You remember, he says, help me. He's surrounded by water too. Help me. We need a piglet faith. We need a a Peter drowning faith, which is, Lord, save me. My faith is not enough. Give me what I need. And so like Manuel Barueco says, you can't just have faith in the abstract. You gotta have faith in something. And I'm preaching the good news to you today that that faith has come, it's presented itself to you. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to make it up. It's yours as a gift. And for that, we are thankful. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.